always makes me nervous to follow a video like that because now every story I tell is going to be judged by that lens, isn't it? Uh, welcome to East Lake. My name is Pastor Nick. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm a cool guy. Um, now my name is Brent. I'm a teaching pastor. If this is your first time checking us out, thanks for checking us out. We're so glad that you decided to spend part of your weekend here with us. We're a church for people who don't typically like it. We started about six and a half years ago and and uh, today, we are in part three of a series called Spirituality. For the rest of us, what does spiritual growth look like at East Lake? And at the risk of sounding like Pastor Nick on the video, uh, I do want to tell you a little bit about uh, something from my childhood or from my, um, my adolescent years, if I can use that term, um, to explain why we're doing this series. Of what, what, is, what is this spirituality for the rest of us? What do you mean by that? So I, sophomore year, went to uh, Pasco High School, a Pasco High Bulldog alumni, and I was not driving because I think I was 15 at the time. My mom bought me a bus pass because the bus didn't come to our house in our neighborhood. Uh, and so I rode the city bus, BFT, all the way to in front of Daily Donuts across from Pasco High, and I would walk down 14th Street. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be very specific so I'm not this general memory thing that he talked about in this clip, right? This actually happened, Okay. Uh, I would walk down 14th Street to school, to class on, on those days, and one of the houses that I'd passed in their front yard, you went to Pasco High, you can verify this. I don't think it's there anymore, but they had a palm tree out in their front yard. You're like, how does a palm tree survive in the Tri-Cities? I know, I know right now you're like, well, obviously with the heat, it could do it, but with the winter that we had and the winters that we typically have, it just gets too cold for those things, right? You would think, yes, that is very, very true. That's why there's no palm trees in the Tri-Cities. However, this family, whoever these people wanted palm tree in their front yard so bad, they would literally wrap insulation around that during the winter years. It would be like this foil that, and the palm tree looked like, it looked depraved, it looked gross, it didn't even look like a palm tree. It wasn't even, they didn't even good job, do, do a good job wrapping it or something, or uh, maybe it just doesn't function in that way. But I, I sat there and I looked at it and I thought, you know, this climate, this climate that we have is pretty unique. Like there are a lot of things that grow really well in the Tri-Cities. We know that grapes grow well in the Tri-Cities, hops grow well in the Tri-Cities. There's a theme amongst those two things. But um, uh, we know, because did you know that 98% of the hops in America are grown in, in, our, in this valley, in the Yakima Valley? And that's crazy, unbelievable. Um, and there are some things that just are not grown well. So there are different climates determine the different type of produ uh, products that are, are, are presented or plants or whatever that are, are grown in there. And, and you can try and grow a palm tree in the Tri-Cities. But you would be better off moving to L.A. or Vegas or someplace where there isn't a horrible winter like the one that we just had. In that same way, in the same way that climate determines what grows well and what grows naturally as opposed to what takes effort to grow, uh, I think that um, the, the purpose of this series has been, all right, we decided seven years ago that we're going to start a church where people don't typically like it. That kind of environment produces certain fruit and certain types of growth, and there's certain growth that takes place naturally here that may not take place in other places. Um, and so what is it? What is it? How do you grow spiritually uh, in, in this type of a, a unique way of doing church? That's been the purpose of looking at this series. And, uh, and the reason being that um, there are a lot of different ways to grow. In fact, the week one of this series, well, we talked about how there are two characters that show up early on in the passages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers. One is a guy named John the Baptist. The other one's Jesus. They're two very different people. Uh, they do take two very different approaches to religious faith. And yet, um, uh, one is far more conservative, one is far more um, progressive or liberal or whatever. 
And, and yet, as soon as John's disciples leave Jesus, Jesus commends John's path and commends John, doesn't criticize his method for doing things, but points to it and says, uh, look at the fruit of ordinance. It's not the methods that are important, but the fruit. And we said, that's the, so that's the thing that we took into this. Like our methods are going to be unique, but as long as the fruit is there, then we feel justified in doing what we need to do. So you're on part three, you're coming in kind of a middle of a, of a movie, basically that kind of a feeling. So if there's a, if there's something in you that wants to know more, either about what I just mentioned with the different paths of spiritual growth, or last week we talked about a thing called the demonstration furniture. I'll bring it up uh, later on in this message. You can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and all of the, this series, the rest of this series, as well as any previous series will all be on there. All right. Today I want to talk about a title of this talk, Bigger and Better Faith. Inside of your program is a note sheet. Um, looks like this, and on the back is a spot to be able to write down some additional notes. But bigger and better, and that's in parentheses, faith. Because that is oftentimes the answer to the question of what do I need or uh, any, any sort of question regarding anxiety, worry, unanswered prayers, or questions about the future. If you've ever grown up in a church environment, if you've ever been around um, a, a religious type of an upbringing, then when you asked, well, why doesn't God ever, or why hasn't he, or why doesn't this look like this, or why can't I? The response many times is, well, you just need bigger and better faith, right? So you come and you gather and somebody would talk for 45 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever. And then at the, at the end, it was the, the, the God over guitar, God over the piano or whatever, saying you need bigger and better faith, and the good news for you is uh, you can come up here to the front, and we can figure this thing out and do all that. So, right, that was that was always the answer. And and then, so but, but if you're inquisitive like me, and, and or um, or you just had questions, you're like, okay, that sounds very generalized. That sounds very abstract. Let's make it a little more concrete. What does faith mean? What is if I need more faith, then what exactly is faith? Define it for me. And there's basically two camps or two ends of the spectrum in defining faith. What do you mean? I need more of this. What do I need more of? Good question. Depending on the church, two ends of the spectrum, on one end of things, you have acquired knowledge. You need more acquired knowledge. You need to know more doctrinally about what you believe because that knowledge then leads to inner transformation, and transformation of your thinking, which leads to transformation of your heart, and the transformation of your actions. So it's, it's come, figure out the answers to these things. Attend more classes, take more notes, uh, be a part of a Sunday gathering more often, and you will get the knowledge that you need to have a f- more firm foundation for your faith. I'm not trying to dog it. That's very, very true. And that's, uh, I, I get that. I understand that knowledge affects how we live our life, okay? That's why we do the things that we do on Sunday mornings gathering here. On the other side of things, you've got unbridled optimism. If you grew up in a church that, oh, what do you need? You mean I need more faith? Well, you need to quit, quit being so pessimistic about your life. You need to take off that lid on yourself. God wants to do things good through you. God wants you to see you the way that he sees you, and he wants the best things for you. Oftentimes, it has to do with uh, prosperity or gain or uh, you know, overcome this sickness. How do I overcome this sickness? You need more faith. Well, what does that mean? you, you, you got to have that belief that you're going to be healed. If you don't believe that you're going to be healed, then you're kind of putting a lid on God, and then that's, that's there. So Somewhere along the spectrum, you probably fall into that range or the upbringing that you had religiously was more faith, bigger and better faith meant something along those lines. Uh, And yet, and then, you know, uh, one of the things that's added into that is there seems to be a definition of faith given in Scripture in a book called Hebrews chapter 11. It's a really famous chapter on faith. They call it the Faith Hall of Fame. He goes through all kinds of biblical characters who who displayed tremendous 
examples of faith. And faith is defined as this, and you probably, if you grew up in church, can finish this phrase from a confidence in what we hope for and assurance of that which we do not see. Confidence of what we hope for, evidence of the things that we cannot see. Confidence and assurance. Confidence and assurance. Confidence and assurance. Either in the truth, more confidence in the truth, that's the acquired knowledge, or confidence and assurance in the blessing, which is that unbridled optimism. And then there was always, always, if you hung out in one of these camps too, too long, especially the one with unbridled optimism, that's the one I've, I've seen it the most in, but whatever, this story that comes out, this illustration, Jesus gathers people around him, he begins teaching them and talking to them, and he speaks in parables or analogies a lot, and one of the most famous ones, especially when it comes to faith, is the one, the example of the mustard seed. And even if you're not religious, you probably know this a little bit. And if you are religious, um, then, then you probably learn it the way that I did. Um, if, ye, if ye would have the faith of even just a mustard seed, then ye could move mountains, right? And the ye's, that's, that's me bringing back my old school King James version of the, the passage. But if ye would have just the faith of a mustard seed, which is like this little, small, tiny little thing, if you could have just that much you could move mountains. You could say to this mountain, I don't like you there. I want you over there. And boom, it's, it's happened. Which, by the way, when you're a kid, opens up so many doors of possibilities. This is an undiscovered tool. How am I just now hearing about this? I would have said yes to Jesus a long time ago if I could have powers like that. And so I, if I'm the only one, then I own this. But I would... I, would, I remember that phrase, reading that phrase, being challenged by that. I would close my eyes and be like, okay, Lord, furrow my brow. And God, I just, I don't need mountains to move. Like, listen, I, I'm not, I don't ask for much. I just want that rock, that one right there to move. I want that type of power. I want that type of, uh, of thing. And then I'd close my eyes and I would squint or just focus my attention really, really hard. And guess what happened when I opened my eyes? Absolutely nothing changes, right? That's how it works. And then, only to feed this mentality even more, I watched a movie. I was introduced to Star Wars, right? In, in, in episode five, I almost, I almost said episode two, but episode five, because he did that whole weird four, five, six thing. In episode five, Luke goes to the Dagobah system and, and crashes his plane in this swamp, and there's this short Frank Oz character called Yoda, remember? And, and Yoda uh, attempts to, to kind of guide him in the ways of the Force, and he teaches Luke that you can kind of move things by closing your eyes and, you know, doing this. And Luke tries to move his, his, um, his X-wing, and, and it budges for a little bit, but then it goes down. And then he says, this is impossible. Remember that? And you know what happens after that? I watched this last night to kind of uh, recap. It's, it's research, right? So um, I, 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 I wanted to, to make sure that I got this exactly right. Remember what Luke does? He tries it, and he says, this is impossible. He walks off, all Mark Hamill-like, and he squats down on, he, he literally pops a squat like in the middle of this like forest thing, and he flicks his hair back, and he's just like, and you just sit there, and you go, oh, I feel so bad for Luke, you know? And then, and then uh, there's like a pause, and then Yoda closes his eyes, and then he sticks out his like two or three fingers, weird thing, right? And he does this thing, and then there's like this rumbling, and R2-DT's going crazy over here, and then Luke walks over, he's like, what's going on, you know? What's going on here, you know? And then, and then this X-Wing begins to come out of the swamp, and it goes in the air, and it's, the straps from the crane lifting this thing are barely visible, and it comes over, and it drops down, and it drops on the land. And Luke says this, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And what does Yoda say in response? 
Brian McDowell, you're here. I know you know the answer to this question. That is why you fail in his Yoda. And this is a test, by the way. This is a nerd test. If you knew the answer to that question, if you mouthed it as I was saying it, then you are officially a Star Wars nerd. And the person that brought you, right, if they're figuring, if you're, I'm just saving you. If you're dating and you decided to come to church together today, and now he just answered this question, you're dating a Star Wars nerd, just, you just need to know it, okay? Whatever you do with it, it's fine. It's your call. But I'm, I'm doing my part to help you at least know that that is the case. And I, I, I saw that, and, and I remember as a kid going, see that. It's like this weird crossover between biblical faith and Star Wars faith, and I'm not sure which one I liked more as a kid, but I, I see you, Luke. I get it. I understand. I want that too, which is why the mustard seed verse stands out so significantly to me. And he says, it's impossible. That's because you, you know, that's why you fail, because you, you didn't try hard enough. And that, that, that's the answer for so many people. How do people grow spiritually? For most churches, and maybe the religious upbringing that you had, it was this, try harder. Either acquire more knowledge or be more optimistic. Quit being so pessimistic about yourself. Quit putting a lid on yourself. But try harder. More classes, more resolve, more assurance, more confidence. But perhaps this passage deserves a second look. Let's look at that mustard seed faith passage and see what it actually says. Luke chapter 17, verses three through six. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Jesus is teaching them about forgiveness and sins against one another. And if they repent, forgive them. If somebody does something to you and they come up and they are genuinely repentant, then you say, I'm sorry. Or they say, I'm sorry, then you say, I forgive you. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, don't buy it, right? It's a joke. They don't actually, they're not actually repentant, okay? And we figure that out. Like the way of the world, the way of, the way of like reality for us is if somebody does this something negative to us and then they come back and say, I'm sorry, uh, you know, fool me once, whatever. Okay, great. Sorry, I forgive you. Do it twice. I'm like, depending on kind of how gracious I am, three strikes, you're definitely out. Jewish law had, um, these people were, they were Jewish. They came from this background where in their law, it said, uh, if somebody comes and asks you for repentance three times in a day, you must forgive them three times in a day. Jesus here takes that number, doubles it, and then adds one. I don't think that there's significance in the number. He's just saying, listen, here's what's reasonable in the eyes of the world. Here's what's expected of you. Here's what's reasonable for the world. The world says, um, if somebody messes with you, then, you know, harbor some resentment, but you should probably forgive. Forgiveness is better, but don't do it a second time because then shame on you. But he's saying this. It's, it's further than that. It's, it's beyond that. Here's an example. Here's an opportunity for you to show unmerited grace in a way that doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world, but this is what I'm asking of you. It's not a matter of calculation. It simply meant that the Christian standard of forgiveness must immeasurably exceed the best that the world has to offer. Then verse 5 says this, the apostle said uh, to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. This seems impossible. This is Luke. Uh, this is impossible. I can't do it. Add something to my faith because what I have is not enough. I need, if I'm going to forgive somebody seven times, if I'm going to really be a walking mat like that, you're going to have to do something in me to make this work. Increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, wait a second, Brent, I thought you said it was mountains. 
It is in Matthew and Mark, the same story is sort of recorded, uh, same type of talk and language and, and illustrations, but in there it's mountains, here's a mulberry tree, which basically means this, not that Luke got it wrong, it means that what they did was when they sat down and wrote these collections of what Jesus taught, many years after, after he actually did it, none of them sat there on the day that he did it with a pen and pencil saying, okay, first he said this and then he said this. Most of them sat back years later and said, what I remember about Jesus was him saying this which means that this illustration, this language, this talk probably occurred several different times. It was probably a part of his uh, regular speech patterns as he would go on and teach people. Say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. And it will, be, uh, it will obey you. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. We don't have enough. Give us what we don't have and then he says, if you have faith. That little phrase there can mean a couple of different things. The Greek language has basically two types of if clauses. Um, those which express a condition contrary to fact. Well, if I were you, if I were you, here's what I would do, right? Kind of subjective, kind of out of the way, kind of like offering different alternatives. However, there's another if clause that expresses a condition according to fact. We would say it in terms of it's more rhetorical, we would say uh, in the way of um, if, if we were married, right? And if you say that to your husband or wife, you'd be like, and we are, right? And if I loved you, which I do, if Jesus is Lord, which he is, that's the kind of like, I'm saying it, but I'm not really questioning it. I'm more stating it as a condition of fact. If Jesus is Lord, and since he is, when he says this, then that's what we should do. If you had faith, and you do. That's probably a better way of reading that verse. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and you do, they said, we need more faith. He's like, you don't need more. You have everything that you need if you would just act on it, if you would just do what you know you're supposed to do. It's not a reprimand for a lack of faith. It's an affirmation of faith and an invitation to live out the full responsibilities of that faith and the full possibilities of that faith. You already have enough faith. That's an integral part, or important piece for understanding this phrase and this illustration that Jesus is attempting to say. And then what does he say? He says to this tree, uproot from where you're at and go and be planted where? Not on another spot. That's not significant. He's, he, he, you plant it in the bottom of a sea, which is like impossible. And, and, and that's the point of this. People would get the impossibility of saying to a mountain, I don't like you there, I want you over there. But the tree thing, to say to a tree, I don't want you there, I want you over there, I mean, you've probably been like, yeah, I had a cousin that moved to a place, he bought this new house, and he didn't like where the tree was at, he planted the new tree, or he replanted it. That's not significant. So he's trying to say, listen, I'm speaking in hyperbole here. I'm not saying that this actually takes place, that this actually plays out in the way that it does. I'm saying those things which feel impossible are actually possible for you if you'll exercise the faith that you already have. That's what Jesus is trying to say, I think, in this passage right here. And what happens to this tree? What's the response of this tree? It says, it will obey you. And the type of verb that's used here is a Greek aorist verb, which basically means the obedience preceded the command. The tree was read. This is in a commentary guy who wrote that said this more smart than more smart. Exactly. See, that's exactly why. The tree was ready to obey the, before the command was given. The tree was ready to obey before the command was given. Predecided obedience. Faith at its best looks like predecided obedience. Faith, trust 
in someone or something is, I'll do whatever you say. You don't have to tell me what it is. I'm in. The answer is yes. What's the question? That's the type of faith that he's talking about here. And we would say, Lord, add to my faith. I don't have enough. And Jesus would say, yeah, but you do, though. But what are you doing with the faith that you have? How quickly am I responding to the light which I already have? Last week we said that there's a dimmer switch principle that I think operates in life, right? That what I've seen personally lived out and what I've seen biblically in, in some of the examples of Scripture of people uh, who, you know, their, their story has been recorded for generations to come to be able to look at and learn from is that we are called to respond to the light of which we have, the truth at which we know. We are not responsible for the light which we do not have, so we don't live in anxiety of, I don't know, I don't know where I stand. It's like, what, what truth do you know right now? And as you begin to obey that truth, then God gives you more truth and more truth and more truth, and that leads to spiritual maturity, right? And the same thing is for darkness, that when we live and when we choose the opposite of that, our, it becomes more and more. God takes that light away, and eventually we find ourselves lost, wandering in the darkness, unable to make the connection between the consequences of our actions and the decisions that we made to get there. So the maturity then is how am I responding, how quickly am I responding to the light which I have? Does it take me a long time to get there? Does God have to twist my arm? Are there an, do I only respond when the punishment of doing the opposite outweighs the benefits of doing this? Am, am I doing this because God twists my arm enough and life becomes so sucky that now I have no other option but to walk in the light that which I have? Let me define, let me give you, each week for this series, I've given you kind of a principle or an idea. The dimmer switch principle was the first one. The blank slate theory, theory was in week one. In week three, here's what it is. The spiritual maturity principle. What does spiritual maturity look like at Eastlake? Does it look like perfect church attendance for a year? Does it look like, uh, you, you know, your kids are able to recite the memory verses? Does it come to be like, you know, I, I listen to the podcast or do the messages or whatever? Spiritual maturity is the ever-decreasing distance between me knowing what I ought to do and then actually doing it. Here's when I realized what God was asking me to do. Here's when I actually did it. This could be a couple of days. This could be a couple of months. This could be, for some people, a couple of years. Here's when I knew what I ought to do. Here's when I got around to doing it. Maturity comes when this distance becomes a lot shorter. Here's what I know I ought to do. And then here's when I actually did it. When I'm told something, am I quick to respond? Yes. If I am, it's because I trust this person. I have faith and confidence and assurance that he has what's best for me in mind, and his ways are higher than mine. So therefore, the answer is yes, God, what is the question? It's probably best understood, though, from a negative standpoint. I mentioned last week that... Um, on Monday, my wife and I took our three kids over to the Washington coast to go visit her grandparents that live in Ocean Park, which is a little bit north of Long Beach. If you've ever been to Long Beach, uh, it's the world's longest beach, which is its claim to fame. It's also claimed to fame that they have this downtown area. It's got really cool shops. It's got a cottage bakery, which is like sinful. It's so good. And then they've got like seven candy stores. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, I was thinking about this this week. The Tri-Cities could not support one candy store in the mall. That thing closed, like, what, two years ago, a year and a half ago? They're like, we just don't have any business. Uh, 250,000 people cannot support one candy store. Seven 
are functioning and they're busy in Long Beach, a city of maybe 20,000 people. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable because it's a tourist town. People come from all over to do the kite festival and the 4th of July and yada, 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 right? So we take our nine-year-old and our twin four-year-olds into all of these different stores. They've, we've gone there for the last three or four years, and so they know. They know the pattern. Here's where we park our car. Here's the first candy store we hit up. Then we hit up Funland with the arcade. Then we go to Scooper's Ice Cream, and then we hit up this other thing, you know, this other candy store, and then we go to this, and it's cotton candy here, and it's peanut brittle there, and it's, it's one of those deals. And... Uh, it, I found out this year it has become increasingly difficult to pull my son out of those stores and on to the next one. My daughter knows what's next. Oh, we leave here to go to this place. All he knows is I'm try- you're trying to take me out of ultimate paradise here, Father. This is literally heaven. Um, and, and what do you say to your kids? What's like the one thing that you say to them as they go into stores like this? Like, look, but don't touch. Like, keep your hands here. This is where your hands go. This is not where they go. Because the next store we're going to go to is an antique store. And, and I know that doesn't sound fun to you. And it sounds really like pure hell to me because there's expensive things that aren't really expensive, but they think they're expensive. And if you break them, then I pay for them. So keep your hands in your pockets. And so I, we, my wife and I spent, I say I, she would be like, ah, you? You know, we spent, I'll, I'll say collectively we, and I'm being very generous on me, spent most of our time monitoring our kids saying, don't touch, don't do this. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go, Grayson. Come on, out of the store. Let's go. We're going to go to the next one. Grayson, can you hear me? Let's go to the next store. Come on, buddy, 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 buddy. Can you, hey, focus right here. Focus right here. And he's got his eyes on this 10-pound gummy bear that's on the bottom shelf. He's like, I didn't even know they made him this big. How is that possible, Dad? I'm like, it's $70. We're not buying it. Focus, buddy. Focus. We're going to the next store. Let's go. Come on. There's more candy over here. Funland's over here. And, and you can see him. He like looks at me. It's like he's on Benadryl, like I packed him full of Benadryl. He looks at me, but he looks through me. I'm like, are you, are you here, buddy? Are you here? And then he goes back to the gummy bear. And I grab his arm, and I pull his arm, and it's twisting. And I know it's got to hurt. And I'm like, come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And he doesn't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I pull him out, and, and it's like a fog. And I have to sit him down on the outside bench. And I look at him, and, and I have to be like, Grayson, buddy. How many times do I have to freaking ask you that we need to leave? I need you to respond the first time I ask you, which is irrational and unreasonable for a four-year-old. I get it. That's what you're saying right now. You're not saying, well, your son has a really bad character problem. You're saying, Brent, that is welcome to kids. You know what I mean? (laughs) Welcome to parenthood. As they get older, they may or may not respond more quickly. Hopefully they do. That would be a sign of maturity that I don't have to tell my nine-year-old, come on, come on, focus, focus, focus right here, right? I'm like, you're nine. Figure it out. Come on, let's go. If you've ever taken a job, your first month on the job, how many times did you have to ask questions and be told, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And people would be like, come here, come here, come here, come here, come on. But like six months in, if you're still having to be asked the questions about what it is that you do here, or why aren't you doing this, or what happened, or how did, why did you drop the ball on this, that's not a, like, it's not maturity necessarily, it's maturity in your knowledge of the job, though. The more, the further along you are, hopefully the quicker you respond to what you know you're supposed to do. And in the same way, that's, I know the analogy breaks down because I have selfish motives for pulling my kid out of a candy store. I don't want to buy any more stuff. And I, I want to get moving on to my things. And I think that, you know, God doesn't operate with selfish motives. He's not keeping you from something. He's trying to keep you uh, uh, towards something else, something better for you. I, I get it. I understand that. 
But I say it because I think the spirituality or spiritual maturity principle plays well in that. It helps us to understand, listen, there are things in life where the conviction of God's spirit on our lives tells us, I know what I need to do, right? Every week we try and gather together, we try and look through scripture, and I try and present options for handles for scripture about here's what you would do if you really believe that this was true. And if you don't, if, if this is uh, a, a way to spend an hour of, of time on Sunday, then that's fine. If you're not a Christian, you get a free pass. You don't have to do anything with what I say. But as, if, you're, if you identify as a Christian, if I'm a Christian, then here's some handles for what you know you need to do. Here's the light. Here's some light. Here's some light that you've been given. Now, what are you going to do with this? And the goal would be, as soon as I know this is an area that I need to work on, this is a blind spot for me. This is a weakness. This is something that I struggle with. This is something I need to do something different on then how long is it taking for me to actually take movement on that? Do I nod and be like, yeah, it's pretty bad. should do something about it. But then I never do anything about it. That's not maturity. That's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is I know what I need to do, and it's the ever-decreasing time it takes for me to actually get to the spot where I begin to make it a reality through my actions and through my belief systems. It puts us in a position where we ask the question, if Jesus is Lord... And he is. For those of us who I, I say we're Christians, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus, and it's that conditional, you know, based on a fact clause, if, he, if he's Lord and he is, then why am I wrestling with this decision? Why am I coming up with excuses? Why am I trying to justify another option, another way, a way that I know is not right? It's not the one that he would want for me, but that's where I'm going. Why do I always try and delay obedience? What is it with me in delaying obedience? Is it because the further I get away from the conviction, the less exact or obvious it feels to me? Many times we try and remove ourselves or push it as far out, the decision to do what we know we need to do, the conviction as far out as possible because it feels less compelling. It feels, we feel less guilt uh, because it's a little bit more abstract. It's a little bit, more, well, is that really what I felt? Is that really what I knew what I needed to do? Or was it something I ate? Or was it false guilt? Or was it false conviction? Or something along those lines. Listen, spiritual maturity at Eastlake, for, for me, the way that I operate and think about th- this kind of stuff is exactly this. We go through life, we're constantly praying, God, if I've got blind spots, reveal them to me. And when they're revealed to me, once the light that I didn't know I had has been given to me, how quickly do I respond and, and respond to this light so that he can give me more? Am I willing to be the type of tree that, that he says the, the, the obedience was in place before the command was even given? I'm in. Yes. What's the question? So closing questions for you. As I've tried to do in this series, uh, create a little bit more physical handles for you moving forward. What is something, what is the light that you've been given? What's specific, specific light? Not like... Um, yeah, I need to be more uh, Christ-like. I need to be more, that's, that's a very general. I need to be a better husband, right? That's, that's very general. I'm, I'm looking for something specific. What is, the, what, what is a specific light that you've been given that I know I need to do something differently in this way? What do you think you're supposed to do about it? What are you supposed to do? What's the plan of action? What's the course of correction for you in this way? And then finally, what is it that you're waiting for? A lot of times we know the answers to the first two, uh, and yet we don't get ourselves to do anything about it. 
The first two are covered, and the last one is the most difficult one. What is it that I'm waiting for? I know what I'm supposed to do. I know exactly what it looks like. I know the light that I've been given, but I'm still just thinking about it. I'm still just, I don't know if I want to cut off that relationship quite yet. I know it's not right. I know it's affecting my marriage somehow. I know that this porn thing is, is, is changing my outlook on the way that I view my wife or my husband or whatever, but I'm not quite ready to let it go. I know it, um, I'm still struggling. I'm still struggling with this. We like value the struggle sometimes. But what is it that you're waiting for? Spiritual, spiritual maturity is here's when I knew what I was supposed to do. And as soon as I get this ever-decreasing span of time between knowing what I need to do and then actually taking action upon it. When you are spiritually healthy, when you're growing, what you see is a decreasing amount of time, which illustrates or shows or displays an increasing level of trust in who God is and what he expects of us. Let's pray. Father, this is... uh, such an important part for us to grasp because it's very internalized. Um, it's very, it requires a higher level of introspection than something that we're used to. There are things, that this, this light that we're talking about, this conviction that we have, and this path towards uh, resolve and resolution is something that probably not a lot of people know about. We, we tend to hide these things in. We t- tend to uh, make them our own kind of pet projects and make them, make them uh, not very public knowledge. And so um, it's not a great small group discussion. This is more us and you kind of hashing this out through prayer or dialogue or just thinking through this kind of stuff. So uh, we apologize for those times that we can all, every single one of us, point to and say, I know I eventually got there and I eventually moved in the right way, but it, man, it took me a long time to get there. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what spiritual maturity looks like for us, to move towards an ever-decreasing amount of time between those things, and give us the courage to then act on the things that we know we ought to do. In your name, amen.